0: Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira bay This week, COVID-19 surpassed heart disease as the leading cause of death in the United States. 300,000 dead from COVID-19.
1: Hospitalizations in the US for COVID-19 exceeded 100,000 for the first time.
0: A record number of unemployed. Video after video of police brutality, especially against African-Americans. Overnight, across the country, the calls for justice are growing more intense.
1: Minnesota's attorney general is elevating charges against the officer filmed kneeling on George Floyd's neck.
0: A president ordering the tear gassing of peaceful protesters for a photo op.
1: Mounted police have been coming down the street using flashbangs in front of them to clear what has been an entirely peaceful protest. Not
0: 98%, not 99%, but 100% and trying to overturn his electoral defeat. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. A paralyzed Congress failing time and again to pass a desperately needed pandemic relief package. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck
1: Schumer urging Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to use a $908 billion bipartisan stimulus plan as the basis for relief talks. Are we actually making a law or are we just making a point.
0: Like much of the world, the US has had an excruciating year. But one thing that links the various conflicts and failures that have afflicted America in 2020 is trust, or rather, the lack thereof. 71% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats now regard the opposition party as a force leading to national decline the line between liberals on the left and conservatives on the right has never been so clear. Neither a COVID-19 vaccine nor a new president will solve this problem. According to today's guests, only a new social compact can. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Danielle Allen is a political theorist and classicist. It's so good to talk to you, Danielle. Oh, well, it's nice to meet you as well. She is a professor at Harvard University and the author of many popular books, including Cuz, The Life and Times of Michael A. She joins us from her home in Boston. Great. So let's just jump right in. You call for a new social compact in the United States. Could you talk about what a social compact is and what are its basic principles in a democracy?
1: Sure. Well, If we are gonna define a social compact, we start in a way abstractly. It's the set of rights and mutual responsibilities that we have among ourselves as citizens in a constitutional democracy. So it's both what's asked of us as participants in that democracy and everything that's made possible for us by virtue of our participation. And it's really important that what's asked of us and what we receive establish relations of reciprocity within the citizenry. So to make that very concrete, We're asked to obey the law, we're asked to pay taxes, we're asked to vote and to think about our politics at local and national levels. We're asked to serve in a variety of other ways, jury duty, for instance. And what we get in return is what, um, in old-fashioned language, people used to call penumbra of protection, an overarching um, shelter. And that penumbra of protection should really deliver safety in times of crisis.
0: Here in the United States, you've argued that our understanding of the social compact has long been somewhat skewed, and you've written extensively about the Declaration of Independence in particular. How did the U.S. founders, beginning with the Declaration of Independence, envision the social compact, and what have we gotten wrong about it?
1: So they had a really important view at the founding that legitimate— government rests on the consent of the people. And that's, that's sort of point one. And then point two is that legitimate government delivers in their vocabulary the safety and happiness of the whole people. And as they thought about that, they described that safety and happiness as consisting in protecting individual rights, but also in delivering a collective safety and happiness. Now, the thing that was really important, the mistake they made at the founding was that they thought they had two things to think about. They wanted to lay the foundation on a set of principles, and those were the principles that people have rights. And then they also wanted to think about how to organize the powers of government. And indeed, they actually did think that rights pertained to everybody, and they did think that the government should be offering safety and happiness or protection to everybody, but they thought that it was reasonable to organize the powers of government so that power lay in the hands of white men with property. And that's where they made their mistake, because it's basically impossible to limit power to a subset of people and to expect the result of that to be protection for everybody. And that brings us to this idea of equality versus
0: freedom, which you've looked at extensively. You talk about how John Adams, for instance, was not a slaveholder, but he believed that only white men with property should be in power. Correct. Can you speak to that particular dynamic and our understanding of
1: equality and freedom? Sure. Well, let me start with freedom and equality. And and actually what my argument is really about is how they are mutually supportive of each other. So if freedom is to be free from domination by individual others or by groups or by other societies, And if we think that we want a society where everybody's free, then in order to be free, we have to recognize our equality with each other and protect that equality through political equality. And then other things matter, too. You have to think about the economy in ways that are supportive of egalitarian empowerment, Um, You have to think about social relations in ways that are supportive of egalitarian empowerment. So all those things come together. So the point is just that you can't actually have freedom for all if you don't also recognize and affirm equality and deliver it in the form of political equality in the first instance. So, What happened at the founding? You had a set of people who did recognize the basic worth of human beings, and in particular, somebody like John Adams, who was against enslavement, um, and in fact, helped Massachusetts abolish enslavement even before the end of the Revolutionary War. So the commitments were real, they weren't just rhetorical. Uh, But at the same time that there was a sort of recognition of human equality, there was a very patriarchal Picture of power and how power should operate. So the idea was that every human being has this basic equal human dignity and every human being deserves a foundation for flourishing and their happiness and safety matter. But, you know, men with property have the responsibility for delivering that for everybody else. And the reason men with property were seen as having this responsibility is because the idea was that property gave you a kind of long-term view about the community. You wouldn't be sort of swayed by transient passions or short-term interests. You would always keep the long view in view. And so the idea was that only people with property, and that meant it had to be Basically, white men, only they had the right kind of perspective to be decision makers for the whole society. So there's a sort of bifurcation between this principle about all people having this equal dignity and the question of how to organize power. And it was where they made their mistake actually, was in how they thought about organizing power.
0: That mistake and the resulting imbalance between freedom and equality has contributed to what Danielle calls a slow-moving legitimacy crisis in the U.S. In 2007, at the onset of the Great Recession, the cracks began to show. This is an extraordinary period for America's economy. Over the past few weeks, many Americans have felt anxiety about their finances and their future. I understand their worry and their frustration. Since then, the share of Americans who say they trust the federal government to do what is right most of the time has hovered near 20%. Now, I recognize the people watching tonight have differing views about taxes, and debt, energy, and health care. But no matter what party they belong to, I bet most Americans are thinking the same thing right about now. Nothing will get done in Washington this year. Or next year. Or maybe even the year after
1: that. Because Washington is broken.
0: A recent Gallup poll showed that just 23% of Americans approve of the way Congress is handling its job. In 2020, two key developments exposed this mistrust. The COVID-19 crisis and protests over police brutality and systemic racism.
1: Both of those things are examples of the government's failure to hold up its end of the social compact. So... We invest in a federal government, a national government, precisely in order that it provide protection in times of crisis. So I think that's a pretty direct failure of responsibility. I think the really important thing about the pandemic response is that by the middle of March, there was a clear playbook for what worked, and it was already in existence and succeeding in New Zealand and Australia and Taiwan and Germany. And that was the combination of masking and testing and contact tracing, using data to support disease suppression, and really being very clear about a national goal of disease suppression. So the real question is, why were our governance institutions, both the executive branch and the legislative branch, not able to coalesce around that playbook. Um, It's not that the playbook was not presented to them. It's rather that they were already making calculations about likelihood of success and political responsibility um, for different components. So basically decision-making was political. It was about electoral politics, which was the surest path Um, to victory in the election. And the Trump administration decided to wager on Operation Warp Speed and getting vaccines out before the election. And that's what they cared about. They didn't actually care about suppressing the disease, they cared about winning the election. And on the other side, uh, the other side also cared about winning the election and in various ways um, didn't assist the administration when they might've done. So the truth is electoral politics were operating on both sides And that defined the decision making all the way through in a way that completely blocked governance for the sake of comprehensive responsiveness to the crisis. With regard to policing, the center of gravity for policing is, of course, at the state level, um, more so than at the federal level. Um, So that also helps us see that we have this layered system where that sort of social compact responsibility kind of kicks in in different places. And with regard to policing, people have been raising issues around policing, have been articulating how it degrades the experience of particularly communities of color and poor communities in the country, um, the way in which it's been disparate. And differential treatment for people of color. So, this case has been documented for quite some time. And what it's documented is a failure of that provision of safety and happiness or provision of security. So, yes, I do think it's another example of government failing its responsibilities toward the social compact.
0: But it's not just the relationship between citizens and government that is worsening. Americans also trust businesses, the news media, and religious institutions less than they used to what's more, we've lost trust in one another. In April 2019, fewer than half Americans reported having confidence in the public's wisdom when it comes to making political decisions. During the COVID-19 crisis, this has been more obvious than ever.
1: Tonight, a deadly end to an ordeal that police say started with a dispute over a face mask. Some are now
0: arguing those masks infringe on their rights. Are you going to allow the government to tell you you have to wear a mask? Somehow wearing a mask has become this political flashpoint, even though doctors at hospitals remind us that the purpose of these masks is to protect others from our germs. It's our bodies. It's our choice whether we're going to wear them, not wear them. You guys are overstepping your boundaries 100 percent. America's botched pandemic response is partly a failure of governance. But you've also argued that a threat like a pandemic must also be met by a society-wide response. The same could be said about discriminatory policing, which has become really impossible to ignore. How do these issues reflect our failure as a society to live up to the responsibilities of the social compact?
1: You made the comment about how sort of issues around policing and so forth have become impossible to ignore. And I think that's a, it's a really important phrase for capturing the difficulty. So the issues of policing have not been ignorable for the people experiencing it for quite a long time. Right, So at, in a world where it's possible for one portion of the population to ignore something that another portion of the population is both experiencing and raising complaints about, um, you have a, a broken social compact because it means people aren't willing to hear and see one another's complaints, one another's grievances. The Declaration of Independence is this text where what the colonists are doing are saying, like, look, here are our list of grievances. And precisely what they say to the king is, You know, look, we've been sending you petition year after year for a decade, and you haven't acknowledged any of our petitions. And that was the king's fundamental failure. It was what made him, in their vocabulary, unfit to be the ruler of a free people. He had violated a kind of contractual relationship with them in their eyes. And so it's the same thing in this case. When people have been petitioning for redress of grievances for a decade and plus, then if the one's fellow citizens are not seeing and hearing that, then that is a sort of um, break in social contract. And so that is, you know, the example in policing. Um, If you look sort of at the COVID situation, I mean, what's really just so powerfully striking about that and so painful is the way in which our ideological polarization really broke decision making. And at the end of the day, I mean, our elected officials have a lot of responsibility for that polarization, but so too do the rest of us. So if we can't knit our connections back together again, we're just sort of stuck in a world where all decision making will be much slower than you need in a crisis. We'll be right back.
0: Looking for the perfect holiday gift? Why not try a Project Syndicate gift subscription? Give the gift of knowledge with unlimited digital access to our archive, weekly long reads, and annual magazine. Visit project-syndicate.org slash subscribe and take 50% off your order with the discount code GIFT50. That's G-I-F-T 50. Hurry, the offer expires on December 22nd. Not all hope was lost in this past year. Despite the pandemic, more people voted in our recent presidential election than in any since 1900. President-elect Biden received more votes than any U.S. presidential candidate in history. What's your take on the newly energized electorate, which I, th- I believe you've called historically monumental? Are we seeing a new birth of civic engagement?
1: We are seeing a new birth of civic engagement. And the question is really whether or not we can convert the engagement from this year into a resource for cultivating a healthy social compact, healthy relationships among ourselves, healthy fulfillment of the responsibilities of governance by our elected officials. The reason that's a question is because... The reason so many people voted, the reason the electorate was so engaged, is precisely because everything was so contested, right? So in other words, it's a paradox that it's precisely the fact that we're so you know kind of bitterly uh, engaged in this competition with each other that that's what brought everybody out. So the question is, can we take the energy that was driven by competition and redirect it into productive, positive cooperation? So it's an opportunity, and it's an opportunity because all kinds of portions of the electorate that have typically participated less were participating. So. People of color participated at high levels, young people participated at high levels, people without college degrees really upped their participation. And that's something that people have been banging their heads against for decades to try to make that happen. So for the first time, you know, ever, we had sort of a scale of electoral participation that is the new Americas, the America of the 21st century, with everybody in the house, like shouting at each other at the same time. Um, And so the noise partly just reflects the fact that everybody's finally in the conversation. So we don't have the kind of quiet, the sort of fake quiet that you get from some people being marginalized and blocked out from the conversation. But now that everybody's in and we can all see each other and it's loud and we're really fighting, we have a really hard job to do to take that energy and to convert it into opportunities for cooperation.
0: As difficult as it will be to overcome polarization, President-elect Joe Biden seems committed to trying. In his victory speech last month, he pledged to unite the nation. I'm
1: a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. I'll work as hard for those who didn't vote for me as those who did.
0: This might seem like an impossible promise, but a look at how people voted on key ballot measures in a number of states suggests otherwise. In fact, Americans agree on quite a bit. It was a very good night for weed. More states, including New Jersey, Arizona, and South Dakota, legalizing marijuana use for adults. Uh, That means that now some 16 million Americans have voted to legalize marijuana in these states, joining another 93 million in 11 other states. More people now support decriminalizing some drugs and restoring voting rights to ex-felons. These initiatives could go a long way towards reshaping our criminal justice system. In this sense, we might already be laying the foundations of a new social compact.
1: If you look at the ballot propositions, you don't see a divided country. Because, for example, in those votes to legalize marijuana, you're seeing a vote, in some cases, supermajorities um, in New Jersey. Over 66%, I believe, of people who are very close to a supermajority voted for legalization of marijuana. And you're seeing very robust uh, majorities in other places. So you're not seeing these kind of, you know, 50 to 49 0.5% votes for example and the same was true in Florida with in 2018 with the vote to Restore the uh, ballot to people who would serve their felony connections was nearly a supermajority at 65%. And so that means, you know, you're getting people on both sides of the political spectrum too voting for these ballot propositions. So it strikes me that if we, we started by crafting our shared agenda from the things that are on ballot propositions, we would actually have um, a direction that as a whole country we could get behind. Still,
0: rebuilding America's social compact will not be easy. For the past two years, Danielle has co-chaired a commission focused on the compact's three main pillars—political institutions, civil society, and civic culture. In June, they published their recommendations. Each reform they propose is supposed to work across all three areas. turn to solutions. The Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship, which you chaired, has made a number of recommendations. One of those is ranked choice voting. How does it work across the three critical
1: areas the commission identified? So ranked choice voting is when when you step into the ballot box, you don't just pick one candidate. You go ahead and rank your first choice, your second choice, your third choice. And if your first choice candidate does not get many votes at all so at the bottom of the list, they fall out and your vote moves over to your second choice person. And with this voting method, nobody wins until they have more than 50% of the votes, you know, in their heap of votes. So it's a requirement for the winner to get past 50%. When you have a ranked choice voting system then people have to campaign in order to build big coalitions instead of campaigning to to drive wedges and just sort of seek to get a plurality um, of the vote, a portion that's smaller than a a majority. And this is hugely important in relationship to what we were just talking about with with ballot propositions, because our plurality voting mechanism is is a big contributing factor to why our national electoral politics look so divided Even when our state level ballot propositions don't look that divided. So if you think about the 2016 election, Trump gets through the Republican primary basically because it's plurality mode of election. And so then what that means is you have a more divisive, more extreme candidate who can squeak through with less than 50% support, in effect, um, get onto the ballot. And then voters are just presented with a choice that feels like the worst, you know, which is the worst of two evils. But when you have a sort of ranked choice system, the candidates who get through will be candidates who have built up a more substantial body of support. Um, and in that regard, should be representing more of a sort of center of gravity um, for the electorate. So you asked, how does that relate to political institutions, to civil society, into our culture? It ties into each of them. It gives, as an institutional mechanism, it gives candidates healthier incentives for their campaigning. They are disincentivized from demonizing opponents because they actually wanna pick up the sort of second choice and third choice position of their opponent's voters. So we see reductions of negative campaigning. That's a really important institutional thing. Then with regard to civil society, as I mentioned, um, it does mean people have to build bigger coalitions. And so you have more opportunity for civil society groups to bridge across difference and try to find um, a shared center of gravity for policy to pursue. Um, And with with regard to culture, Um, I mean, I think both of those things then feed into a recognition that we are better off when we can build our politics around sort of a problem-solving orientation that seeks to build big coalitions and find sort of a more centering approach to politics.
0: You also recommend expanding the House of Representatives and then thereby the Electoral College by at least 50 members. How would this help to overcome the slow motion crisis of legitimacy that we discussed earlier?
1: So we have this incredibly complex system in our political institutions, and they were designed always to balance and counterbalance, in some sense, the sort of overall shape of popular opinion taken at a national level, and the perspectives of specific states. So there's always been an element of our structure that's about the states, and a part that's been about the national perspective. So the Senate, for example, represents the states with every state, regardless of how big it is, having two senators, whereas the House represents the sort of popular uh, representation, sort of uh, uh, proportional to, to the population across, across the country. And that balance was supposed to be reflected in the Electoral College also. But about 100 years ago, Congress passed a law that led to the end of reapportioning the house, building the house up um, over time. So, basically, in the late 1920s, Congress decided it wasn't going to keep increasing the size of the House. And the result of that was that it sort of undid the principle of having the full popular representation, both in the House and flowing through to the Electoral College. And so the the sort of state principle started to predominate. this really matters because our demographics are changing. And, you know, in the early 2000s, we went from being a country where the majority of the population lived in rural areas to being a country where the majority of the population was in urban areas. So that further exacerbated The effect of this capping of the size of the House resulting in less populous parts of the country being really overweighted in terms of how much influence a vote in Wyoming, say, has on the Senate or on a presidential election. So if you let the House grow again with the population, not necessarily at the original rate of, you know, one representative to every 30,000 people, but something better than one to every 700,000 people. If we let the House grow again, then we get a better representation of the full spread of the population um, in the Electoral College, and we will not be in danger of seeing what we saw in 2016, where there's a split between the popular vote and the Electoral College vote.
0: Institutional reform alone is not enough to solve the crisis of American democracy. Civic culture is also crucial. More than half of Americans say they are dissatisfied with how democracy is working in the U.S., and 46% say they are open to other forms of government. This sentiment is even stronger among young people. When you ask people how important
1: is it to you to live in a democracy, you look at people born in the 1930s and 1940s, over 70% of people say, 10 out of 10, it's absolutely crucial to me to live in a democracy. When you look at people born in the 1980s or 1990s here in the United States, it's less than 30% of people. Danielle,
0: I'd love to end our conversation by talking about civic duty and civic culture. You say that a common purpose is essential to maintaining a social compact. At a time when Americans are so divided and mistrust is so high, how can we find that common purpose?
1: Well, that's a great question. I think the answer is we don't find it, we make it. And exactly, I mean, you've just described the political project of the next decade, which is we are divided, we don't see a common purpose, and so we have the job of making one precisely in order to have a country where we understand our mutual commitment to one another and to our constitutional democracy. So in the context of division and distrust, how does one go about remaking um, a sense of common purpose? To some extent, I think there's a lot of work that has to be done on our media ecosystem so that we are in a stronger place with regard to our ability to combat misinformation and disinformation. Um, so our media ecosystem has been you know blown up over the last decade by the impact of social media. and I think we're only just starting to get a handle on how to redesign it in ways that are supportive of democracy. But I'm optimistic that there are enough inventive creative people out there who can see structures um, in the civic, civic media sort of landscape that we can bring to bear to pr- produce much more healthy context for information uh, creation and, and consumption and deliberation and so forth. So that's one aspect, the media aspect. The second aspect is really about how we do our politics. And I do think that that is about listening, you know, actually taking the time to reach out and and hear what the urgent felt needs are of people on the other side. And I know that that can seem very Pollyannish, but this is what I mean a little bit about sort of starting with building an agenda out of state ballot propositions instead of starting with the kind of national picture. If we just started with all the issues that already have you know, supermajority support or robust support around the country, we would have the beginnings of a paradigm. And then the question would be like, what do we put on top of that? What comes next? So the pieces that have that huge amount of support are decriminalization of marijuana, rolling back the war on drugs, rolling back our system of mass incarceration and thinking about alternative approaches um, for our system of sanctioning. There have been supermajority support uh, votes around a number of symbolic things like Mississippi, its State Flag, Rhode Island, changing the name of the state, taking plantation out. So there's a kind of hunger actually for, in fact, building a shared set of cultural symbols that we could all get behind. We fight about that a lot, but there's actually a hunger for a positive, productive path there. Uh, so I think like just those pieces already, and you have a huge chunk of our civil society infrastructure, our political economy, and we actually have agreement about that. So like let's start with that agreement and then figure out what next round of policy positions build on top of that toward the healthy, productive society that is implicit in those ballot propositions. Thank you, Danielle. Sure. That was
0: Danielle Allen, a political philosopher and a professor at Harvard University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. And this is the last you'll hear from us in 2020. We're taking a break for the holidays and will return in early January. Until then, I'm Elmira bay Opinion Hazard is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein.